The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants that they should give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. Him also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, God forbid. But he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. The Gospel of the Lord. Welcome to All Souls Anglican Church. I'm Father Stephen. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you following the liturgy. Uh, I have just a few announcements for you. The first is that this is the last week that I will be giving announcements before the sermon. Uh, we, uh, we, I, decided that we were going to experience more historic liturgies that have formed the Anglican Church over the years for the season of Lent, and it's been uh, an interesting experiment uh, for most of us. So, but this is the last week of Lent proper uh, liturgically, so starting next week we will be returning to more uh, familiar liturgical forms. Um, my first announcement, as I grab my notes with other announcements, is just an apology for those of you that heard the Old Testament lesson and assumed that I was going to go with DC Talks, God is doing a new thing, uh, I, I went in a different direction, so uh, the under, what is it, 40 crowd, I guess you guys can YouTube that video, uh, it's spelled very differently, new thing, so I'll let you figure that out on your own. Okay, just a few announcements here as we are coming up on a very, very busy time for us. I want to make sure that uh, all of the info that's been coming out in your emails and all of that is clear, okay? So, uh, first of all, Palm Sunday is this Saturday. We are not meeting a week from tonight due to a scheduling conflict with St. Michael's with the building here. So we will be having our Palm Sunday service on Saturday, April 13th starting at 4.30, okay? Um, then uh, we will be starting our Holy Week services with a Tenebrae service on Wednesday at our downtown chapel at 6 p.m., a Maundy Thursday service the following night at 6 p.m., after which we'll start the watch. You should have gotten an email from me this morning with a sign-up for the watch and a little explanation there. Then we'll have our Good Friday service at 6 p.m. All of those are downtown, including our Holy Saturday service at 4 p.m. And then on Easter Sunday, we will be here for the Easter vigil, a sunrise vigil starting at 5.30 a.m. 
and we'll do the full Easter vigil, and then we'll return here 4.30 that afternoon for evening prayer, and we're going to have a mega feast. And I was, uh, it was pointed out to me that I use feast in very different terms than our culture sometimes. I don't always mean that we're going to be gorging ourselves. This one is both, okay? This one we will be doing both. So you should have gotten an email about that as well, including an RSVP for that. Uh, and in that RSVP, it'll, it'll allow you to select what you're able to bring, how you're able to help us prepare for that. We're going to be doing an Easter egg hunt for the kids. Um, so again, in your email, you should have seen uh, we're soliciting uh, little things to fill the plastic eggs that you can bring um, on Saturday, and those will be filled either early Saturday or, or Sunday. But um, So a lot going on. If you have questions, if you've heard conflicting reports uh, my brain has been a little scattered with all of this, so come and talk to me, and uh, between the two of us, we'll get 75% of it correct, okay? But uh, go with what's in your email. All of that should be correct. The, the next one is Saturday, okay? Saturday instead of Sunday, 4.30. All right, you've got other... Oh, and I should mention, during Holy Week, all of our regular midweek services, prayer services, are canceled, okay? All right. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In the late uh, mid-1800s, I recently found out in London, there is this uh, amazingly terrible thing that happened that has been referred to ever since as the Great Stink. Anybody know about this one? So it turns out, uh, you know, human beings are fairly gross, and we've only recently figured out ways of, like, avoiding that fact, but London, back in the mid-1800s, didn't exactly have the greatest sewage system. And so the Thames was badly polluted, so much so that one particular summer, it was through a confluence of perfect weather and everything else, the entire city just really stank. And there were multiple issues at play, but one of them was that the Thames was a tideway. And so the ocean tides would actually push the water that was flowing through the city back up into the city, and it wouldn't really be able to get out. It was keeping it semi-contained rather than allowing it to flow freely. And one of the civil servants who was tasked with fixing this smelly problem realized, among other things, that they needed to fill in the banks of the Thames they needed to constrain the boundaries of this river so that the water would flow with more force and, you know, the smelly wastewater would get out into the ocean, which, of course, you know, now we know that's also not the best, but at least it solved that particular problem in an immediate way. It's kind of counterintuitive, though, right? That you would, you would make the river smaller to get it out faster, we live in an era where freedom is seen as a total lack of boundaries. To be truly free in our world's imagination is to be unpossessed by anyone. Even if we don't actually live out our lives this way, our imaginations have been shaped deeply by this view of human life. That we are all just a series of individuals living out our own individual lives. And we can choose almost anything we want. We can choose our career, our field of study. We can choose where we live, how often we move. 
Not just can we choose to have food, but we can choose what kind of food we want to have almost every day. Most of the time, we can choose when we want to have children. We can choose to be serially sexual in our relationships or not, and we can even ostensibly now choose our own gender. We understand ourselves to be without borders, without restraint. But to live without restraint is to live without definition. And just as water needs boundaries if it is to truly be a river, so we, if we desire true happiness, true freedom, true life, need to be bound to something pointed in a particular direction. Because we were, after all, designed to have our lives hidden with Christ in God. This is in part what St. Paul is getting at when he declares that he regards everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. When Paul was confronted with the glory of the risen Christ, he underwent a revaluation of everything and came out of that process with the recognition that to share in Christ's suffering and death so that he might share in Christ's resurrection is the only pathway toward joy, toward real life. Throughout this passage, Paul is using imagery from athletic competition. Following Christ, we might say, is like a marathon. Or as I've said before, it's a mountaineering expedition. The summit, the destination, is nothing less than Christ himself, but so too is the path. The oxygen that animates our bodies for this climb is the life of the Spirit, which is to say, as Paul does in his letter to the Philippians, it is all grace. He receives and encounters Christ through faith, not through works of the law. It is all a gift. It is given to us, and yet it simultaneously requires all of us. That's what he means when he says that he has been held onto by Christ, grasped by Christ, possessed by Christ. It requires all of us all of who we are, because nobody summits a mountain by accident, right? It requires intention. It takes training. It presumes the guidance of those who have gone on before and mapped out the terrain. And above all, it involves putting one foot in front of the other on the narrow switchback pathway that leads ever upward into the cloudy darkness of God. As Father Schmemann put it, this world says, be happy, take it easy, follow the broad way. But Christ in the gospel says, choose the narrow way, fight and suffer, for this is the road to the only genuine happiness. We have to remind ourselves that we are living in a city of smog. Our eyes, our sense of smell, our lungs have all become accustomed to the pollution of the brokenness of the world, and we don't notice it. We don't even know that it's there most of the time. But as we heed Christ's call into the waters of baptism, and as we move onto the trailhead of Christ our mountain, we do so as we gain a new awareness. The ancient church, in, in her baptismal rites, and especially in the chrismation part of baptism, which you'll see in, in just two weeks, 
When I anoint the newly baptized with oil, we don't do all of this anymore, but the ancient church anoint, would anoint the newly baptized with all of their senses. They would have oil put on their eyes, on their nose, on their lips, on their hands. It was a way of signifying that the Spirit was going to unlock their senses so that they could see clearly both the smog of the worldly city and the glimmering, gleaming glory of the city of God. They were having their entire ability to perceive the world changed. The early church understood clearly her existence as pilgrimage. As St. Paul says here, straining forward to what lies ahead, to that place where Christ is all in all. And through the gift of Christ, the church has given us the equipment needed to meet the challenges of leaving Smog City. Our mountaineering gear includes the life of prayer, immersing ourselves morning and evening in the scripture and the prayers and the hymns of the church. This is our daily food, and it is always pulling us toward the summit, toward that banquet table that awaits us there at the top. And while each of us must walk the path, we do not do so alone. We've been given fellow pilgrims for this journey. We have been baptized into the communion of saints. We have been given to one another, and not only to one another, but we can see the footprints of those who have gone before us. We can hear their cheers. We can smell the incense of their prayers being poured out in the throne room of God as the heavenly worship continues all around us. And above all, we have been given the sacraments. We have been given communion with God himself. We are caught up into the heavenly realm as we feast at this altar. The sacrament of the Eucharist is a mini mountaintop from which we can see more clearly how petty our lives have become in Smog City. Our obsession with food or comfort or career success, it all begins to dissipate as we enter the presence of God as the gathered church is being made into the mystical body of Christ as we feast at his table. It's easy to think of the Eucharist as one more weekend activity sandwiched in between a bunch of other activities. And if we run out of time or energy from our other work and leisure, it's easy to cut out our participation here. But at what cost? It is here that we are being built into the temple of God. We are being conformed to the specifications of that cornerstone. And it could be that we may find ourselves so busy building our own lives if we neglect coming to this place and being shaped according to that pattern. We could be like all the other religious people that Christ encountered and reject the very stone, claiming that it's unworkable with what we have planned, the stone that is the foundation of the entire universe. Woe to us if we reject this stone, for everyone who falls on it will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. We must not give in to the impulse of Smog City that would try to convince us that freedom means being unpossessed. We must instead See with spirit-given eyesight the new thing that the Lord is doing. He's making rivers in the desert to give drink to his chosen people, a people, the Lord says, did you hear in our Old Testament lesson, whom I formed for myself 
so that they might declare my praise. It is for this that we were made, and it is here alone that we will find true happiness and freedom and life eternal. A people whom I have formed for myself. We were made to be possessed. In his book, Back to Virtue, Peter Kreeft recounts a great thought experiment posed by St. Augustine. He says, imagine God coming to you and offering you the following bargain. God offers to give you everything you can imagine in this world and the next as well. Nothing shall be impossible to you and nothing shall be forbidden. There will be no sin, no guilt. Anything you can imagine can be yours. There is only one thing you will have to give up. You shall never see my face, says God. As I've said before, the fundamental choice presented to all human beings is a choice between God or not God. Kreeft points out, I think, with great hopefulness that most of us feel a catch in our hearts when we hear that last line of the bargain. And you know what he says? He says that that means you can tell yourself already that you have already been willing to give up the whole world for God. That little moment in your heart when you heard that line, you'd have to give up seeing God's face and you thought, oh, no deal. You've just given up the whole world. Kreeft is also quick to point out that in choosing God, we don't quite get God as God is ungettable. Rather, we give ourselves to God. Kreeft says, God has already given himself to you by the unthinkable generosity of creation, incarnation, and redemption. The only open question is whether you will give yourself in return, whether you hunger to be possessed. I think that phrase clarifies the harmony of our scripture texts this evening. Whether you, hungry, whether you hunger to be possessed. This human desire to be unpossessed is shown to us even in our gospel lesson. Did you catch the moment when the religious leaders broke in with their horror? It's very revealing. As Christ goes through this parable of the vineyard, where the tenants, who are God's people, mistreat the servants of the landowner, the prophets, those who were sent to them to call them to repent. They mistreat them. They treat them violently. And they even go so far as to kill the landowner's son. It's telling that when Jesus gets to the part, not, not when the, the tenants have violence toward the prophets, not when the tenants commit violent murder against the son of the landowner. They know who the landowner is, right? It's very clear. They say nothing. But when Jesus gets to the part where the landowner says, enough, give the vineyard to others, that's when they gasp and say, God forbid. Jesus' listeners who have asked head on would deny till they were blue in the face that they had ever mistreated God's messengers suddenly gasp, 
heaven forbid, because they didn't want to be reminded that they and their vineyard were the possession of the landowner. They'd become so consumed with their own projects, so obsessed with themselves, that as the religious establishment hears this stunning critique of their own way of life, they're not horrified by the idea that they and their ancestors are guilty of bloodshed, guilty of disregarding God's messengers, guilty even of plotting to kill the landowner's own son. They're horrified by the idea that the vineyard might be given over to other people. They'd forgotten that the vineyard existed so that they might be in communion with the landowner. Self-preservation is a natural human response, but as the church, as the community of those who have been redeemed, bought back from slavery to death and the devil, it cannot be, self-preservation cannot be our raison d'etre. Everything that we do as a parish, as a microcosm of the church Catholic, must always be done in the light of Christ's self-disclosure. All that we do, all that we are, is bound up in his resurrection life that is offered to us by the Spirit in the sacraments of the church. At the risk of being overly obvious and pedantic, the church is now God's vineyard. And we must take care lest we start to confuse the vineyard with the true vine and the husbandman as Christ calls his father in John 15. This is not a thing for us to grasp onto and possess as if it were our own. It is a place where we are grasped by the vine himself, possessed by God. To be in Christ is to be brought over from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life, in the kingdom of light, it is Passover and it is possession. Freedom apart from being possessed by God himself is an illusion and it leads to destruction. Holy Week is upon us. And what I just said about not being possessed by God leading to destruction not being possessed by God, leading to destruction, is going to sound more and more bizarre and even perhaps ludicrous as we watch Jesus Christ, the one who remained possessed by his Father's Spirit in a way that no other person has. And yet he enters into suffering and death. He enters into destruction. The darkness of Holy Week is profound and impenetrable. And it is only with eyes that have been opened by the chrism of the Spirit that we are able to see through that darkness and perceive the morning star. It is only with ears that have been opened by the Spirit, ears of faith, that we can hear the voice of Jesus say with the psalmist, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption or destruction. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. There are those within the vineyard who have become so consumed with keeping neat little rows in their theological grapevines that they do not want the presence of the landowner 
But his presence is the only thing that brings gladness. It is the only thing that brings life. The presence of God is the gospel story. In the Orthodox liturgy, during their version of passing the peace, they declared this gospel in this one little phrase. And with this, I'll close. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.